0: He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to our God once again this morning and ask Him for His help. Our gracious Father, Lord, we do come to you this morning believing that You will provide, that You will provide the various things that we all need in our lives, whether we have physical needs right now, material needs, or spiritual needs, Lord, whether, whether it's faith that we need or money to pay the bills that we need, Lord, we know that you are the great provider. And so we ask as we give our attention to your word for a few moments, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would again provide, that you would provide wisdom and insight, that you would teach us from your word, that you would show us Jesus, that you would show us the glorious gospel of grace. And that you would show us how you have been faithful to, to provide and meet our needs. And that you are faithful to do that for us today and forevermore. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is a real pleasure to be with y'all. I and always love coming to Zion. So thankful. Thank, thank you for having me. And, and uh, it's just a real joy to be with you today. Thank you. Uh, every decade seems to have its own fads, its own, you know, these sort of things that are popular for a moment or two, and then they sort of, just as quickly as they rise in popularity, they vanish, they evaporate. So the 90s was was the decade in which I sort of came of age. So I remember a lot of the 90s fads really well. And so one that I remember pretty well was those magic eye posters. If you recall, it was like a computer-generated poster. It just looked like... Uh, you know a lot of some random colors and maybe some uh, a strange sort of pattern of design, but if you looked at it in a certain way, you could sort of see a picture like a three dimensional picture within the picture. if you remember what i 'm talking about. Uh, I remember I had one on my wall for a while um, in the mid to late '90s, which was like, a, like I think it was a rocket ship that, it, and you had to sort of like cross your eyes in a way and you could sort of see that there' was something that looked vaguely like a rocket ship in this poster. Um, and if you couldn't see it, you felt really frustrated. If you could see it, you felt, you know, pretty cool. You felt like you had some good eyes or something. Um, our passage this morning is a bit like a magic eye poster. That it's possible for multiple people to come to this passage and to come away from it with very different perspectives. To come away from it with, with very different ideas of what, uh, of what they've read. One person might look at this passage and come away with it, seeing a God who is angry Or perhaps a God who tests his followers in very cruel ways. Or even commands child abuse. Another person might come away from this passage and see something totally different about God. About who he is. About his character. And so just like one of those magic eye posters, this passage is designed to show us something hidden. Something special. That if we look at Genesis 22 in the right way... We see hidden in here Jesus. We see the gospel hidden in these words. And so as we look at this passage this morning, um, I want us to see three things related to God's provision. First, we're going to see anticipating God's provision. Then we're going to see receiving God's provision. And third, finally, we'll see God's ultimate provision. You'd be hard-pressed, first of all, with with anticipating God's provision. Let's let's think about that for a moment. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more significant human person in the Old Testament than Abraham. He's a very significant uh, individual. He was a pagan living in the land of Ur, did not worship God, was worshiping idols, worshiping false gods. When one day God appears to him, God comes to him and says, Abraham, I want to make a great nation out of you. You will, be my, you will be my people, I will be your God, and all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you and your descendants. And Abraham says, okay, that sounds good. I think that's the appropriate response when, that, when God says that to you, right? And so God takes him to this land of Canaan, and he says, one day I'm going to give this land, this is going to be the promised land, one day I'm going to give this, to, this land to your descendants. But there's a problem for Abraham. He and his wife, Sarah, are, are old, they're elderly, and far past the age of childbearing, and they don't have any children. They don't have any children to, they don't have any descendants whatsoever. And so in Genesis 15, God takes Abraham outside one night, and he says, I want you to count the stars. I want you to count the stars in the heavens, and that's how many descendants I'm going to give to you. And the Bible tells us that Abraham, childless though he was, believed God's promise to him, And he was declared righteous. He was saved. We see justification by faith in Genesis chapter 15. We see that people in the Old Testament are saved just like us, by grace, through faith in God's promises. They were looking forward to God's promises being answered just as we look backward through time to the cross, to Christ, to see God's promises being fulfilled. But by God's miraculous grace, when Abraham is 100 and when Sarah is 90, they have a son named Isaac. God keeps his promise. He gives them this, this promised child, this special child, Isaac, that he had said he would give it to them. Imagine with me how that felt. Imagine, in, especially in a culture where having children, having descendants, there's such a high premium, such a high value placed on having children, especially male children, to carry on your line, to have descendants. It was so important for both men and women to have children, and something they've been wanting their entire lives, and something that now God has appeared to him, to Abraham, and specifically, specially promised I'm gonna give you a son, and the w- entire world is gonna be blessed through your descendants. Imagine the joy that, that he felt in his son, this promised child. Isaac was a daily reminder to, I, to Abraham and to Sarah about God's faithfulness, that God keeps his promises. Abraham and Sarah, I'm sure, were full of joy at this gift of God. And then imagine how Abraham feels at the beginning of our passage in Genesis 22, when God says to him in verse two, I want you to go to this mountain that I will show you. I want you to take Isaac, your only son, this special gift that I gave to you, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. Imagine what Abraham might have felt in that moment, the the dread, the anxiety, the the fear. But throughout all of those feelings and emotions, he obeys God. He gathers his son, he gathers his supplies, a couple of servants, and they head to the mountain. So Abraham had enough faith to follow this really hard command that God gave to him. But it doesn't end there. Look with me at verse 5. In verse 5, we see this that Abraham says to the young man, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come again to you. Abraham is going up onto this mountain with the intention of offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. Yet we see here his faith is such that he believes that he and Isaac will return together, that they will come down from the mountain together. He believes that the Lord will keep his promises to bring a nation from Isaac, to bring many descendants to him. Abraham is anticipating God's provision. He's anticipating God's provision. And notice that as he and Isaac are walking along uh, alone up towards the mountain, Isaac, we don't exactly know how old he is here, but he's old enough to realize that something is missing. That there's a very important uh, piece of the puzzle here that's not present. They have the wood, they have the fire. But as he says uh, to his father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And what does Abraham say to his son in verse 8? He says, God himself will provide the lamb. So Abraham is again relying on God's promises, relying on God's provision. His faith, we see, is rooted in the character of God. That God is good. That even in the midst of this strange request, this strange command to offer up his son Abraham still believes that God in his character, in his person, is good, that God is a provider. Abraham does not understand how all of this is going to work out, how it's going to make sense, but he believes that God is good and that God is going to keep his promises. God is going to meet his needs and provide for him. The passage we heard read earlier in the, in the service from Hebrews chapter 11 really helps illuminate Abraham's thinking for us. I'm just going to read a couple of those verses again for us. Abraham, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 11 verses 17 through 18. Uh, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham is fully, is walking up this mountain with his son, fully intending to go through with this sacrifice. And yet he also believes God's promise that he's going to give him descendants through Isaac. How is this going to happen? Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham's fully intending to go up this mountain to kill his son, offer him up, sacrifice him, but that God would raise Isaac from the dead even to keep his promise and that they would come down the mountain together. We learn something important from this passage about faith. We learn that real faith, the the, the kind of faith that is able to trust in God and trust in his promises, even in the midst of suffering, suffering, even in the midst of confusion, even in the midst of hardship and difficult circumstances, that kind of faith is rooted in God's character. It's rooted in God's character, in who you believe God to be. I'm not the kind of person who generally uh, remembers a lot of quotes that I hear in sermons. I don't, I don't jot down those kind of things. I don't know, maybe I should do that. It's just not something I've done. But there is one quote that I heard in a sermon once that I wrote down. It's on a piece of paper. It sits right next to my computer screen in my office, and I'm going to share that with you. It's a quote from Sinclair Ferguson, a great preacher, and he here's a quote from a sermon that I heard him preach one time. He said this: "Who you are and the way you live reflects who you think God is and what kind of character you believe He has." We'll read that one more time: "Who you are and the way you live." reflects who you think God is and what kind of character you believe he has. So for, for instance, in those moments of life when anxiety and worry and fear grip our hearts and take hold, what is it that you are believing about God in that moment? Perhaps you're believing that God is powerless to help you. Or perhaps you're believing that he's not good. Or perhaps you're believing that he is not kind or that he doesn't love you. But the Bible tells us again and again that God is those things and he does those things. The reason that Abraham has enough faith to enter this horrifying situation in Genesis 22 is that ultimately he believes that God is good. He believes that God is powerful. He believes that God is kind. That God is merciful, that God loves him and cares for him, that God will keep his promises. That's what Abraham believes, and we see that worked out about God's character. And we see that in the way that he lives. We see that in who Abraham is. So our faith problem may not be that our faith is too small. Our faith problem, uh, you know, sometimes we think, like, if I just had a little more faith, uh, maybe I would be a better Christian, I'd be a healthier Christian somehow, but maybe the problem is that we don't actually believe what the Bible tells us about God and about who he is. That the way that we live our lives doesn't reflect the teachings of the Bible as far as God's character. That we don't, that, that we may know those truths about God in our minds, and our heads, that, but that message hasn't quite trickled down to our hearts. It's not evident sometimes in the way that we live. I know for myself, that's certainly the case. So we see here Abraham anticipating God's provision. Now let's consider our second point this morning, receiving God's provision. I think the big question that many of us have when we come to this passage is why would God ask Abraham to do such a horrible thing? Why would God ask him to do this? What effect might this have on Isaac? Can you imagine the, the traumatic experience of being tied up by your father and put on this altar and and a knife being raised above you, what what effect would it have on Abraham to go through this? What effect might it have on their father-son relationship? Why would God command something? And this is a good question. Why would God command something here which elsewhere in the Bible he forbids, which elsewhere in the Bible he condemns? Child sacrifice was a very real practice by many pagan religious uh, folks in the Old Testament. Many of the pagan nations would frequently uh, sacrifice children to their gods. And God condemns this all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament. So why would he then command Abraham to do this thing which he hates, to do this thing which he says not to do? I think it raises a number of good questions. But we're told in verse one that this command was given to test Abraham's faith, that God never had any intention of Abraham carrying out this, following through with this act. And that seems quite clear from the passage, I think. So was it cruel for God to test Abraham's faith in this particular way? It may seem cruel to us, perhaps, but it's important that we remember that God's ways are not our ways, uh, that we don't see things from God's perspective. But what we know about God's character is that he is not cruel, that he is just and he is holy, he is merciful and kind. There's a verse I've been really thinking about a lot this semester, which has really been an encouragement to me. It's a verse uh, from Isaiah chapter 49, it's verse 15. And here's what it says. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. I, my wife and I have three children. They're uh, eight, five, and three. And so I've got some experience. I've never been a mother myself, but I've got some experience watching a mother very, you know, up close, watching a nursing mother with her child. And, you know, when my wife, I know for all of our children, even now, but especially when my children were, were infants, when they were babies, when they were, um, you know, newborns, I, there was nothing that my wife thought of probably more than the baby, than the child, than taking care of this child. You know, her maternal instincts and all that stuff, like there was nothing that she could, that, would, that could take her mind away from her child. And yet the Bible tells us that a nursing mother will forget her child before God forgets his people. God will not, he says, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. That's who God is. That's his character. So God knows exactly how this test is going to be for Abraham. This test is for Abraham's benefit. And it's been written down for our benefit. This is a test for Abraham, for him to see In himself, does he really love God, or does he just love the stuff that God has given to him? Does he love God, or does he just love the son that God gave to him? We often think we love God, but actually, sometimes we just love the things he gives us. The blessings, the things that he gives to us, the stuff that he's given to us. We often love the gifts more than we love the giver. And trials in life really bring that out and reveal that to us. But if you come to this passage this morning and if you walk away from it with this idea that God is cruel, that he is demanding, that he is bloodthirsty, you've missed the entire point of Genesis 22. What is the point here? It's to teach us that God is a provider, not a taker, that he provides. Because just as Abraham is about to bring the knife down on Isaac, in verse 11, an angel appears and stops him right at the last second. And Abraham looks up and what does he see? He sees a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. And Abraham slaughters the ram and offers it as a sacrifice in place of his son. It's a substitute in place of his son. And Abraham calls that place, that location where all of this happened. He calls that place, we're told in verse 14, the Lord will provide The whole passage is pointing us to the fact that God is a provider, that he provides. You know, as I mentioned, child sacrifice was not that uncommon in the ancient world among certain people groups, but notice how this is different. Notice how this story is different, that God is differentiating himself from all of the false gods of the peoples back in those days, where those, the, the false gods demanded child sacrifice, and yet the one true God, the living God of the Bible, does not say, come to me so that I may take from you. The, the God of the Bible says, come to me, and I will give to you, and I will provide for you. Even in our own lives, I think there's a big difference between the one true God and the false gods that we so easily erect in our hearts and worship the idols of our hearts because false gods only want to take from us some of us in here perhaps this morning are worshiping the god of success and it's a hungry god and it's a it's a false god that says give me your time give me your energy sacrifice your marriage and your children for me and in return i'll give you great success Perhaps some of us in here are worshiping the God of control, that we want control in all areas of our lives. We crave it. We do everything we can to get it, to keep it, to maintain it in our relationships, in our work, in, uh, in every area of our lives. But we never have enough, and we, we feel weak, and we need more control. And anything that reminds us that we're not in control irritates us and aggravates us and frustrates us. Perhaps some of us here this morning are striving to serve the God of beauty or the God of money or the God of approval from others or maybe even our own children. And we give and we give to these gods and they take and they take and they take. When we make these good things that God has given to us and we put them in the place of God in our lives, make them an ultimate thing rather than just a great thing, they drain us and they empty us and they ultimately can destroy us but the one true god the living god of the bible he doesn't work that way he's not a taker he is a giver he is a provider i want you to listen to two passages from one from the old testament one from the new here's how the god of the bible invites us to him here's how from isaiah 55 here's how god invites us to himself come everyone who thirsts come to the waters And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? God invites us to come to him, to receive salvation when we have no way to pay for it. He invites us to stop giving ourselves to things which won't ultimately satisfy us, which won't ultimately fulfill us, He invites us to stop giving ourselves to those things and to come to him and to be satisfied, to have our spiritual thirst quenched and our hunger satisfied. In Matthew 11, a similar passage, listen to how Jesus invites us to come to him with these words. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come to me, not so I can throw more burdens on you. Come to me and find rest for your souls. Come to me and find relief. Don't you want to be in a relationship with a God like that? Instead of the false gods which we give ourselves to, which constantly demand and demand and demand and take and take, and, take. and so a question for us this morning is, who are, who are you serving today? Who are we serving? Are we serving the one true God who provides, who satisfies, who fulfills, who gives? Or are we serving false gods? Have we built up idols in our hearts to, to whom we're serving and giving our time and our energy and our money, and they just keep taking and taking and taking and draining us? But what false God are you sacrificing to today? Perhaps it's your career, perhaps it's a hobby, perhaps it's your politics. All of those gods will take from us, but the living God, the God of Abraham, He will provide. And that's the difference. In what area another question for us this morning is in what areas of your life do you do you need God's provision? In what areas do you need Him to provide for you? What is it that you are thirsting for and hungering for? What what are the burdens that you have brought in with you this morning that perhaps you're trying to manage on your own rather than crying out to God, the great provider? We often think about, when we think about our needs, we often think about physical needs uh, only. We sort of stop there, and that's certainly important. I don't want to downplay that. We, we need to take our physical needs to God. We need to pray for, for healing. We need to pray for God to um, take care of whatever financial strains we may have, or whatever issues we may be having in our material, physical lives. We need to take those things to God. And yet, sometimes I think we neglect the spiritual needs that we have. There's an article written several years ago by David Pallison called Praying Beyond the Sick List. And he says, yes, we do need to pray for sick people. That's, that's good. That's, we, we, the Bible commands us to do that. But we also need to pray for spiritual needs. And so a question for you this morning is, what is... What is it that your heart and soul need today? What, what is it that your spiritual needs are? What spiritual needs do you have that, for Jesus to meet today? Maybe what you need is more faith. Maybe what you need is, is wisdom for making some big decisions in your life. Maybe what you need is victory over a particular sin, which has, you've been struggling with for some time. Maybe what you need is a boldness to share the gospel with that coworker with that neighbor, with that family member. Maybe what you need is for God to give you a love in your heart for the people in your life who frustrate you and irritate you, for the people that you find it hard to love. Maybe what you need is for God to give you a desire to spend more time in his word, to spend more time in prayer with him. I would encourage all of us this morning to ask God not only for the physical things that we need him to provide for us, but also the spiritual needs that we have. Genesis 22 is telling us something important about God and his character, and that is that he provides. So let's look now finally at God's ultimate provision. Um, Our last point this morning. About 18 months ago, it was a Sunday morning, and uh, my children were down in my office, which is in the basement of our house, and they were spinning around. My son was spinning around. He was about four at the time, spinning around in the, uh, the computer chair I have down there, and he fell out, and he landed on his arm just like this, and broke both of the, the bones in his right arm. And he's, we're, we're pretty used to this. He's sort of a wild, a wild little boy. He's had, he's five now, and he's had three broken bones already. Um, so uh, anyway, so we took him to the ER that Sunday morning. My wife and I take him, and they, I mean, you could tell it was pretty gruesome. You could tell it was, it was broken just by, just by looking at the arm. Um, they're not supposed to, they're not supposed to turn like that um, in the forearm, uh, and so, but we still needed to get an x-ray just to kind of make sure, is everything, wh- what, what's exactly going on in there? We need to make sure uh, sort of what, what do the breaks look like and, you know, how many breaks were there? Was it a clean break? Was it not? And so on. And so we had to get an x-ray to get a better understanding of kind of what was going on in our son's arm. And we got it all taken care of. He's great now. Uh, but in order to understand the Old Testament... We sort of have to look at it through x-ray glasses. We sort of have to put on uh, something like that to see what's really going on in here. And when we put on the x-ray glasses, uh, Christ is our x-ray glasses, sort of, so to speak. The Christ lens, the lens of the New Testament, is how we come to the Old Testament to read it. And when we read it through this Christ-centered lens, we see in this, pa- in this pa- passage a picture of the gospel, a picture of Christ, First, notice Abraham and Isaac's conversation. Isaac asks his father, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham answers him that God himself will provide us with a lamb. But what does God actually provide? Not a lamb, but a ram. And that seems like a sort of insignificant detail until as we're reading through the Bible, we get to John chapter 1. And John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Centuries and centuries later, we see this come to come to this sort of prophetic moment. Uh, this prophetic thing which Abraham spoke come to fruition, which he had no idea that the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Christ would come to take away the sin of the world. But we see this passage pointing us to that. Another way we see this passage pointing us to the gospel is that this uh, most scholars believe that where this sacrifice is happening on Mount Moriah that centuries later, this is where Solomon, King Solomon, builds the temple on the same mountain. This is where Jerusalem is. This is where the presence of God is going to dwell in the temple. This is the, the area where Christ himself is going to be sacrificed for our sins. But even bigger than that, this idea in this passage that the Lord will provide, because that's really the gospel in a nutshell, that the Lord will provide everything that we need to be saved. The Lord will take care of our sins and our sorrow and our despair and our doubts. He provides everything needed for our salvation through the perfect life and, his, and the death of his son Jesus on our behalf. So how has God provided for us? He's provided for us by doing the very thing he did not allow Abraham to finish, by sacrificing his only son, his beloved son by sacrificing him for sinners just like us just as god provided a substitute for isaac with the ram he provides a substitute for you and me in his son jesus and jesus dying on the cross was not a mistake this was god's plan that is why he came god sent his beloved son to be sacrificed for sinners like us so that he could offer us that invitation come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest so that he so that god could offer that invitation to us come you who have no money come and eat and be satisfied that's the invitation of the gospel and it's only possible because jesus paid the bill because he paid with his life and when god invites us to himself what does he require us to bring he requires us to bring nothing. God will accept us because, he, it's, it's not because I'm a good and moral person. It's not because I go to church, because I read the Bible, or I know a lot of theology. That's not what the Bible teaches us. God accepts us because we have, even though we have nothing to offer him, but our sin. One of my favorite hymns is, Come Ye Sinners. And I love the line in that, which says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's all he requires, is for us to feel our need, for us to come to him, to meet our needs, to provide for us, to give to us. And the only thing that we need to approach God is to see how much we need him, that we are desperately in need of his provision, that he's the only one who has what we need, and we'll never understand the gospel until we understand that the only way to get to Jesus is to approach him with empty hands. And it's easy for us to think that before we go to God, we need to get ourselves cleaned up. We need, to, we need to fix ourselves. I need to become a better person. Then I can be a good Christian or then I can become a Christian. But God invites us to come to him as we are and to bring nothing. Because what the gospel is telling us is that God will provide. That he provides everything. That salvation belongs to him. So this morning, go to Jesus with empty hands. Go to him with, your, with nothing but your need. Cry out to him, because he promises to provide. The Bible is his track record, and it shows us in passages like Genesis 22, it shows us that he is a provider, that he promises to satisfy our deepest longings. He promises to give us rest, and he always keeps his promises. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do indeed keep your promises, that you do provide. And Lord, we recognize that we are such a needy people, that we need everything. We need all of our needs to be met, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically. Lord, we are dependent and needy creatures. Help us to learn to take our need to you. Help us to come to you with empty hands, seeking your provision, seeking your care, seeking your fatherly love and protection.